You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jerry Mander is the director of the International Forum on Globalization and the author of books that include Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television, In the Absence of the Sacred, and with Edward Goldsmith, The Case Against the Global Economy. His latest book, co-written with Kuhan Paik, is The Super Fairy Chronicles, Hawaii's Uprising Against Militarism and the Desecration of the Earth. Thank you for joining me, Jerry. I'm very happy to be with you. Jerry, this is a really fascinating story, yeah. and it, it seems the more you pry away at it, the the, the more scunge comes out from up <laughs> underneath. It's an amazing story. Well, tell us a little bit about the genesis. When did this first start? The project, or my, or my interest in it? Well, you, the the Super Fairy Project. Well, the Super Fairy Project was the uh, dream of a, a couple of local entrepreneurs in Hawaii who uh, had the idea of running a ferry boat uh, between the islands. Um, the islands are several hours apart by sea. And um, everyone in Hawaii thought it was a great idea because it would be really nice to have the islands connected and to be able to get on a boat and go see your family and maybe take your vegetables over to market uh, on another island. and. Uh, it, it, and I mean, I also, uh, I mean, I wasn't involved in it until s- several years later, but my co-author, Kuhan, uh, thought it was a great idea also, and everyone was really looking forward to a nice little neighborly Gamutlik ferry ride uh, with their neighbors going back and forth between the islands. But it quickly changed because uh, people began to realize that the ferry that they had in their minds, this nice neighborly uh, ferry, was uh, actually um, a completely different in scale and uh, form and uh, seemed like with different purposes than anybody thought it thought it was going to be it's this they they were they were constructing it it didn't start it didn't wasn't ready to run for another 6 years and people got wind of what they were building which is this very huge monster 350 foot five stories high um, boat that runs at 40 to 50 miles per hour is fantastically fast through all the protected whale zones and turtle zones, and and it was going to be carrying probably uh, invasive species among these islands, which are still some of them very very pristine and with with a tremendous amount of biodiversity. And people got very scared that this boat was going to be uh, an environmental hazard and. Uh, especially by the speed and size of the boat. And it was going to carry 800 people. Uh, it was going to make several runs a day between each, each of the main islands. It was going to carry uh, almost 300 cars. And all of a sudden, people thought, what, what had they bought into? What, what is this thing? It's a completely different creature than they imagined. And they start demanding an uh, environmental impact statement. And uh, they said that before this boat should run, it should have an environmental impact statement. By, by then, though, by 2004, the boat was bought away from the original entrepreneurs who had this, what people thought was a good idea. It's a guy named uh, John F. Lehman, a very, very infamous uh, 
military guy. He was a, he was the Secretary of Navy under the under, under Ronald Reagan. He was famously aggressive. He was an advocate of winnable nuclear war. He was an advocate of a 600-ship navy so the U.S. could dominate all the seas of the world at will. Um, and he was so far to the right that Ronald Reagan uh, let him go, said, uh, so that's pretty far to the right. But he, he kept up with those opinions uh, all, all the while and, and um, became the um, majority shareholder of the company and um, the person who really kind of pushed it to its new, to its new heights and its new dangerous mode. Tell, tell, give us an idea of the scale of this thing. It sounds like it's a, a football field that you could drive at 50 miles an hour. <laughs> it's about a, foot, a football field and a half, and it's five stories high. It's, a, it's a, made out of aluminum, um, and it's, so it's very light at the same time. It's supposed to be very strong, strong enough to carry tanks, as uh, John F. Lehman, the owner, was quick to point out. Um, and it goes at 40 to 50 miles an hour, and it, and there's no way of, of not hitting whales and um, other creatures in the sea if you're going to travel at that speed. And Lehman and the, and the company were completely resistant to the idea of doing an environmental impact statement, which is, which is why... You had a mini revolution in Hawaii about it. People just got really crazed over that. Now, tell us a little bit about the part. Uh, you have a really interesting cast of characters in this. You kind of de- the way you develop this is is to to lay out the cast of characters. Yeah. So, tell us about uh, the the Hawaii's governor, who uh, Linda Lingle, who yeah. surprisingly turns out to be a Republican. I was <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a it's a supposedly democratic state, although I have a feeling. A lot of the instincts of Oahu are much more Republican than the other islands. In fact, I'm, I'm sure that that's true. Well, the main character is Lehman, who, uh, who as I mentioned before, he's the, he's the key guy in the story, and um, he's the one who had the great, the great ambitions for this boat, and as, uh, as we can get to later, uh, he's the one who really, turns out, um, is planning for this boat to be far more than a neighborly ferry ride among the islands. He has great military aspirations for the boat in keeping with all of his interests. And that turned to be that turned out to be why he didn't want an environmental impact statement because he wanted the boat to be in the water and not sl- didn't want to wait a year for an environmental impact statement because the boat was supposed to be a prototype for a massive expansion of high-speed, mobile, uh, shallow water, uh, huge uh, vessels of this kind uh, in expectation of a conflict with China down the road. But we can come back to that. I'll answer your question about Linda Lingle. Linda Lingle was uh, originally, she's a very interesting character because everyone thought of her as a liberal from, for her early career. She was always a Republican, but she worked on the island of Molokai as the editor of a small native newspaper and uh, had a very progressive bent in those days. And uh, people thought of her as a, quite an interesting person of uh, battling for native Hawaiian rights and things of that kind. And but after a certain point, she left Molokai and went over to Maui, where her family family is the um, owner of the biggest automobile dealership chain, or, or Maui and Oahu, the biggest auto, automobile dealership chain. And she got gung-ho into business. She said she wanted Hawaii to be more open for business. She got very, very, very aggressive about... Um, um, limiting the number of laws that could affect whether business could move around and the options of business. She was really uh, open for business. And then she ran for governor on that, on that platform, o- Hawaii open for business. 
and uh, won against a very poor Democratic candidate. And then she just really moved to the right. She just really became embedded in uh, ever more conservative Republican circles and um, was could be counted on for always choosing business over environment and and uh, for, for being ever more uh, aggressive in terms of promoting businesses. Um, and then the super fairy thing came along, and that's when she really, really took off because, or really showed herself is what I really mean to say, because suddenly she had this John F. Lehman landing in her lap, who was this very high up figure in the Republican Party. He was, as I said, the Secretary of Navy under Ronald Reagan. He was, he was the finance manager for John McCain, and according to the New York Times, Lehman was slated to be John McCain's um, uh, chief of staff, the same as Rahm Emanuel is for Barack Obama now. That was going to be John F. Lehman. And Lehman is very well known in all the military circles in Hawaii, in uh, all over the United States. He's a, f a famous military guy. And um, he was pulling strings all over the place to get this super ferry jammed through as quickly as it as he possibly could. And she was helping him. She was carrying towels for him for, right from the beginning, uh, even to the point where the public was massively demanding an environmental impact statement. Lehman was refusing to do an environmental impact statement. And uh, so there was a lawsuit led by the Sierra Club and Maui Tomorrow and another group called the uh, Kahului Harbor Coalition demanding an environmental impact statement. The Hawaii Supreme Court uh, which is no radical crowd, voted five to zero in favor of an environmental impact statement under the Hawaii Environmental Policy Act, which is a pretty tough environmental law, uh, Hawaii Environmental Policy Act. And uh, they said you got to have, you can't run this boat until you have, until you have an environmental impact statement. Lingle then uh, took that as a challenge, and she told the company to go ahead and run anyway. Just go ahead and run the boat anyway, now, and we're going to pass. And we're going to. This is in 2007, mm -hmm. mid 2007. That's when the first Supreme Court case was in favor of an environmental impact statement. She told him to go run the boat anyway. The company said it wanted to run the boat anyway, and she then passed. Got a law passed by whatever coercive means she managed. Of course, the company had handed huge um, campaign donations to many of the leading legislatures in Hawaii, as well as Lingle. But in any case, they passed this law called Act Two, which basically circumvented the Hawaii Supreme Court and said that the boat could run anyway because, you know, they, they had some um, technical reasons why they ma made that excuse. And, they, and so she took authority and said the boat can run anyway. And then it had its maiden voyage um, to Kauai. It was planning its, its first voyage was to the island of Kauai. And that's really when things hit the fan because uh, that's when this gigantic uprising happened and it really turned the whole issue around. Now, uh, tell us about the part that uh, Murad plays in this. Well, uh, the uh, U.S. Maritime Agency is uh, Murad, Murad. It's part of the Department of Transportation. And it has, it at a certain point, when, when uh, Lehman took over the company, Murad mysteriously announced that it was going to give a $140 million, Lehman's investment to buy controlling interest in the company was uh, $90 million. Um, the total amount of operating 
to, to build two boats, which is what they were doing at that time, took $180 million. Um, Murad gave a loan guarantee for Lehman of $140 million. So they had more than enough money now to get these two boats constructed. And also, that means they could borrow with the loan guarantee. There was nobody who wasn't going to, they got bank, bank loans very, very quickly as a result of that. And they were able to um, complete construction on, on the boats. And, um, and Marad also made it a condition of its loan that there would be no environmental impact statement under the federal National Environmental Policy Act. The state and the federal environmental policy acts were avoided, uh, or avoided for the, at that point, they were avoided. Now, tell us about these environmental impact statements. How hard are they to avoid? I mean, is this something, is this like really just a, a pro forma thing? Oh, you kind of have to do this, or is this really difficult? Well, yeah, it is a pro forma thing. If, if, I mean, it's pro forma in the sense that if you have a project that is that can uh, arguably and uh, legally can be shown to be threatening to the um, to the uh, some parts of the environment, which this boat absolutely certainly th- was a threat to the environment from dozens of possible ways, uh, you are required to have to make an environmental impact statement to to state the ways in which it's dangerous, and to go through a real investigation and answer all the questions that are supposed to be answered before you operate, and then there's supposed to be, you know, legislative oversight of that, and, and there's supposed to be uh, governmental oversight of that to be sure that all the questions are answered, and then decisions are made based on that as to whether or not the boat should be permitted to run. And both the National Environmental Policy Act and the Hawaii Environmental Policy Act have very, very clear rules about if you violate the act to a certain degree, uh, I don't know the exact language, but the the, the, the boat would be the the project would not go forward. In this case, the boat would not run. And uh, Lingle's Law, Act 2, um, said that the company should do an environmental policy act, uh, an environmental impact statement, but it should do its own environmental impact statement. And uh, it had none of the stipulations of the National Environmental Policy Act or the Hawaii Environmental Policy Act. It was, uh, it was a fake environmental impact statement. Uh, meant to fool the public and 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 kind of um, create the illusion that the, that the law is actually being followed. But we should really get to the um, uprising because that's really the, the the most interesting part of the story, if I may. Sure, sure. This I is the incident at Noeli Harbor. That's right. Yeah, because after Lingle told, I mean, this is this is really why we did the book. And my partner in this uh, Kuhan Pak was was there. I didn't know that much about it. This was mid-2007. She st- I started getting these phone calls from her from the dock where this first voyage of the super ferry was supposed to be coming in. She was telling me, you can't believe what's going on here. There's 1,500 people. This is a very small island with a very small population. It's probably about the size of Santa Cruz. What's the population of Santa Cruz? No, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think it's more or less the size of Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. And you had 1,500 people down on the dock shouting, you can't come in, you can't come in here without an EIS, and had big signs, no environmental impact statement. You can't run without an environmental impact statement, and so on. And she said, and then all of a sudden, surfers started jumping in the water um, and uh, with their surfboards and swimming out, uh, paddling out right underneath these 
the speeding boat that was heading right at them with these deadly catamaran blades. Um, and there were some three dozen of them in the water right smack under these blades with their arms up in the air and the boat had to stop. It couldn't proceed. That was a very, very dangerous thing they did. And um, a very, very kind of powerful message. It was an extremely uh, spectacular event. And the boat uh, had to wait about four hours. Finally, the Coast Guard managed to shove all these people over to the side, and the boat did manage to uh, dock that first night. But then when the passengers tried to get off it, all these 1,500 people were there waving their placards at them, and a lot of them just stayed on the boat and went back to Honolulu. Then the boat came back again the next day, and even more surfers and even more protesters were on the dock. And the boat got stopped, and it never did land, and it, and it, and it never came back. It's, it, that was the end of its runs to Kauai. And, um, and it's, a, you know, it was a, it's a spectacular story of rarely, usually non-political people. These are, these are not people who are used to doing uprisings. This is a very laid-back island in an already laid-back state, but it's the most laid-back place. <clears throat> and they're just not used to protesting things. This is the first time most of them had been involved in anything like this. The surfers themselves came over there without big expectations that we were going to do something, but they got so enraged at seeing this boat coming on like that. After, just days after, Linda Lingle had refused to follow the Supreme Court ruling and ruled that the boat should run anyway, and they just, it just made everybody just nuts. And they went out there and they blocked the boat, and it's a fantastic story. And uh, a fantastic event. And we, we talked to some of these surfers in the course of doing the book. And one guy in particular, the very first one out there, said he had no plan to do that. He just jumped into the water and he started going out there. And he looked behind him and his son, his 14-year-old son, was paddling after him out there. And, and the Coast Guard kept trying to ground him and he, and he kept avoiding the Coast Guard. And finally they caught him and they said, why are you doing something like that? And he said, do you have children? And the Coast Guard God said, yeah, I have children. He says, I'm doing this for your children. And uh, that was the kind of attitude among, the, among these protesters over there. It was, it was very, very inspiring. But then there was another lawsuit mm-hmm. saying that Lingle could not, you know, saying that the, the boat had um, violated, the, that Lingle's law was illegal mm-hmm. and that um, it was a law made for one specific commercial project and should not be permitted. By then, she had the boat running again to Maui. That's the only place it continued to run. It canceled all its Kauai runs. It canceled all its Big Island runs where there was similar protests developing. And it had one run a day to, to Maui, and they sued. And just, just lately, the Supreme Court ruled yet again by five to nothing that the boat couldn't run. And now they've closed shop, and, they, and they're, they've left. They're gone. But this really was never a, a ferry, was it? It was never meant to carry people, especially. Well, was the it? boat itself carries people. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it, it can carry people, but um, it became very, very clear in the course of things. I mean, you have to go that this was really basically a military project. This was just Lehman dreaming his dream of uh, impacting, um, you know, adding to the U.S. power in the Pacific. And when he when he bought the company. First of all, this is, you know, there's so much evidence of this, and it just people hadn't, didn't notice it at first. When he bought the company, um, he already was a famous militarist, as I said. His, his investment firm 
over the last uh, dozens of years has only invested in military projects. It never invested in anything but military projects. Mm -hmm. So that should have been that should have been the first payoff. Then the second point was he immediately appointed a board of directors that was just like him. There were, there were former admirals and generals and people who had been the heads of military services. and um, Thomas Fargo, right? Well, then later he appointed Thomas Fargo as the CEO. First he appointed mm -hmm. a board of directors that was the similar kind of crowd. Mm -hmm. And then he had Thomas Fargo, who was the, who was an, you know, the admiral, admiral Thomas Fargo, who was the head of all... U.S. military operations in the Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean under Donald Rumsfeld, Donald Rumsfeld and George W. Bush. He reported he 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 um, uh, spoke directly to the president. I mean, he, he that's who he would report to as the president and Donald Rumsfeld. So people said, you know, what does he have a what does he have a a mini Pentagon board of directors, a kind of shadow Pentagon? With the top military guy in the entire U.S. Navy, you know, uh, of all, covering all of the Pacific, that's that's where the Navy is, is mainly in the Pacific, to run a little neighborly ferry boat carrying vegetables between the islands, and they kept and they kept saying that that's what their function was. They just want to be a neighborly ferry. Then it turns out, and this was the big expose, was that the manufacturer of the super ferry, a company named Austal which was originally an Australian company, but had moved to the United States in order to get military contracts, a shipbuilder company, had submitted the design of the super ferry to the U.S. Navy in order to try to get a contract for up to 55 sim similar lightweight aluminum uh, catamaran or trimaran, uh, high-speed, very high-speed vessels, that could carry huge numbers of tanks and troops very fast uh, across, the, across all the Pacific. Because people also wondered, why is this boat going at 40, 50 miles an hour? And why does it have enough tank capacity to take it all completely across the Pacific? I mean, this is the biggest tank capacity on a ferry boat in history, probably, I, for all I know. I don't know for sure on that one. But it can go completely across the Pacific without refill. So this is a uh, the local ferry had enough gas to go across the Pacific. Well, it, uh, it, it had that capacity. Good lord! <laughs> so, um, um, and wh what do they need it for? Why mm -hmm. do they need that kind of capacity? Obviously, because it's going to have other uses eventually. But in any case, they built this boat, and then applied. They were building this boat, and then applied to the U.S. Navy for this contract under the Joint High Speed Vessel Program and the literal combat, literally in shallow water combat ship program uh, in preparation for war with China, because that's what these boats are being prepared for, for um, to be very high speed, to, to be able to police the coastlines of, of the Pacific and, um, and Asia, and to be highly maneuverable and light and fast, and troop carriers and gunboats, both. So um, they applied for this. And just at that time, the people of Kauai were saying, and, uh, and the people of Hawaii were saying, uh, no, no environmental, we, there's got to be an environmental impact statement, which would have kept the boat out of the water for a year. And the company wanted, the company and John Lehman and the super ferry company all wanted the boat to be in the water because it was a working demonstration of the capacity of this boat to operate in rough seas in the Pacific and would help 
um, the Navy make up its mind to give the contract to um, Austell USA. And, and they did. In November of um, 2008, they awarded the first 10 construction contracts, the first 10 boats, under the Joint High-Speed Vessel Program, were awarded to Austell Corporation. Based on the performance of the Super Ferry? It's exactly the same boat. And, and it's the, it was the one that was already in the water. It's, I, mean, it's, I mean, it has military features on it now, but, and it has, uh, it's a different paint job, you know, but it's exactly this, it's, it's the same boat, basically. It's uh, with very, very minor um, accoutrements, like it's got a fold-out ramp for a different kind of boarding. It's got a few different things that a commercial ferry boat doesn't have, but it's, it's, bas- it's fundamentally the same design. And Austell itself admits that. They say the, their greatest hope was that having the boat in the water uh, in Hawaii was going to help convince the Navy that this was a, a worthwhile boat and that they knew how to make good boats. And, and uh, not only that, but they also had a workforce because they had already worked on the super ferry that was already attuned to this kind of boat and they had supervisors and so on. They knew how to make a boat like that. And the, and the competing company, which was Lockheed, didn't know how to make a boat like that. And so Austell got the contract, and I just want to say how much money is involved in this. This is a $1.6 billion contract to make 10 boats that are almost identical with the Super Ferry to sell to the Navy. Meanwhile, John Lehman bought next door to Austell in Mobile, Alabama, another shipbuilding company right adjacent to Austell. And the speculation, we don't have proof of this as yet, but the speculation is that somewhere along the line he shares some of this, uh, some of this uh, um, contractual largesse with uh, Austell. But we don't have hard evidence. But that's everybody's scurrying through all the documents now to try to figure out if that's true or not. It may not be true, but it looks like it's awfully surprising that he bought this giant shipyard right next door to Austell at the same time that he was that Austell was a creditor of his super ferry company. And they were refusing to do an EIS statement so Austell could could get the contract. I mean, it just, you know, if it walks like a dog and barks like a dog, it's maybe a dog. Now, um, let's talk about uh, some of the players in this. One guy who kind of interested me was this uh, Judge Cardoza, who kept finding... Um, he kept finding in their favor. He seemed kind of like you, and you also talk about you know the illegal uh, campaign donations to uh, Lingle as well from from all this. Talk about some of the. Uh, he did make. They weren't illegal campaign donations to Lingle. Mm-hmm. It's just that Lingle said she was never take a campaign donation from a corporation and and did and then hid it and then it was it was uncovered by the Honolulu Advertiser. And it also, and our other campaign donations were made to the state legislature, to a lot of, a lot of people in the state legislature. Lehman was raising money for McCain, and Lingle was working on the McCain campaign. She's the one who introduced Sarah Palin at the Republican convention, and then traveled with Sarah Palin um, around the country to try to, to try to get the McCain ticket, um, uh, you know, elected. And the supposition in Hawaii is widespread that if McCain had won, that Lingle would have become, um, would Lingle would have, uh, uh, McCain had won and Lehman was, Lehman had become 
his um, chief of staff, Lingle would then have been in a good, a good position to get a high-level cabinet position. Everybody was guessing that it would be the Secretary of the Interior, if you can imagine such a thing. That sounds pretty scary. Now, tell us about <clears throat> the potential impact of, of this super ferry. What, what exactly could it do in, in terms of what kind of wildlife would it harm? And especially the invasion of species. How how does it spread invasion of species? Well, I mean, any any vehicle that travels from one island to another island in Hawaii is capable of spreading invasive invasive species. But um, most, very few of them carry this number of cars. And it's on the bottom of cars that a lot of the most dangerous bugs wind up moving between islands. And so there were a whole series of rules that the that the uh, local environmentalists wanted the ferry to adopt, like washing the bottom of the cars before they got onto the boat and having really, really serious inspections of the bottoms of cars. And uh, they're also worried about animals like mongoose because Kauai is still one of the biological hotspots of the planet. You know, it's got a fantastic biodiversity. And it it does because there are no mongoose there. The mongoose has invaded several of the other islands and as a result uh, has wiped out dozens and dozens of species of birds and it's been a it's been a big struggle to keep to keep the full biological diversity going then there's also by bringing enormous numbers of people between the islands there it would have created um, increased you see the islands are already over you know these beautiful islands that are known for their incredible beaches and beautiful nature and so on are very overcrowded already especially those outer islands they've got They've usually got one road that goes around the island, and and as the traffic and the pollution is immense. The beaches are too crowded. The coral reefs are dying very, very rapidly from just too many people. So just the impact of hard, large numbers of people and large numbers of cars is already very traumatic. Um, but I would say the main thing that really got people, and the and the also the a lot of people were worried about um, outsiders coming in reef, you know gleaning things off the reefs that, and taking them to other islands. And, uh, and, um, but the big, the big concern was impacts on, um, uh, in the protected whale and um, sea, uh, giant sea turtle uh, zones. This, the, the areas around Hawaii are the, the number one nesting ground, number one um, birthing ground for humpback whales. There's thousands and thousands of them around the island. And it's a it's a very serious um, uh, problem for this boat zooming through it and um, zooming through these zones, and people are very very concerned about it. Tell us about some of the people who you know took action. Uh, I, I'm thinking of you know the the newspaper reporters, Christy Wilson, David Cunningham, Chris Yates, and maybe talk about some of the bloggers and how the Native Americans also um, Native the, Hawaiians the Hawaiians uh, took care well, of us. Well. Um, the media situation in in uh, Hawaii is is, is very um, problematic. The mainstream media, especially the mainstream broadcast media, which is located entirely on, um, except for a couple of small radio stations, the broadcast media is located located entirely on Honolulu. It's very right wing, extremely right wing. In fact, that when I was in Honolulu, I had the first time of my life of, you know, 50 years of activism, uh, walking off a radio show in the middle of the show because I was being yelled at a la uh, Sean Hannity and stuff just from the moment I sat down, they were screaming at me. So 
I finally got up and walked off. But even the NPR affiliate there is very right-wing, I'm sorry to say. And uh, we had a very unpleasant interview with, with uh, the NPR affiliate in Hawaii. Every time we said something about Tom Fargo, the guy would say, on the air, Tom Fargo's a great guy. I used to work for him. I used to work for him at the Pentagon. Oh, no, John Lehman is a great guy. I used to work for him at the Pentagon. And uh, so we thought, how are we going to tell this story on Honolulu? But the Honolulu Advertiser newspaper, uh, on the other islands, there are small radio stations that are pretty good. On Kauai, this small radio station, KKCR, it's a community-run radio station, nonprofit. It's not part of NPR, but it's an independent uh, radio station. It was really on the case. It was always reporting what was going on. It was always having people on the air so they could. It was really the rallying uh, point for the protests. Uh, and uh, there was one like that on Maui also, and uh, I'm not sure of the other islands, but uh, those radio stations had a big role. Uh, on, on, the, on Oahu, which of course has 70 or 80 percent of the total population, and Oahu is the most globalized. You know, Oahu is the one is the island that's involved in trade with through across the Pacific, and it's you know it's big tourism, big military. Twenty five percent of the population of Oahu is military. Twenty two percent of the land area is military, and uh, so military and tourism are like ninety percent of what goes on, and so Oahu is completely locked into another paradigm than the smaller. Um, more rural islands of Kauai and Maui and Big Island and Molokai. So it's a completely, it's a, it's a different culture. They should really be separate states. It's sort of like Northern California and Southern California. There's, there's, there's even more difference than that, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Kauai is to Honolulu as, um, I don't know, Mendocino is to uh, Los Angeles, let's say. You know, it's the same kind of schism. Or Santa Cruz is to Los Angeles, we could say. Um, But the Honolulu Advertiser newspaper, I have got to say, and we did say it in the book, did some reporting on this that was absolutely great. Um, Christy Wilson, who you named, another guy named Derek DePledge, did a series of reports that were just wonderful, uncovering um, these campaign donations, uncovering the fact that Lingle's own Department of Transportation had said... Of course you have to have an environmental impact statement. Of course you're going to, we have to do that. This boat is absolutely required to have an environmental impact statement. And um, Lingle then took the head of that department, took, a, took him off that. Oh, no, he, he, she told him he's got to change that. He did. He did. And then she took him onto her own staff and as her chief of staff a little bit later. But um, uh the, the, they, they uncovered all the internal dialogues that happened inside the Department of Transportation and all this uh, back and forth with Lingle, and they exposed that. Uh, they exposed the Marid. You know, when Marid gave its loan guarantee, which basically made the whole project possible, completely violating uh, the normal rules of business for the Bush administration, uh, several members of other government agencies, including Chris Yates and, um, now I'm forgetting the name of the other guy, Cunningham, and uh, of the National Marine Fisheries Association, I think it was, wildly protested against this. They said, how can you do it? How can you not do an environmental impact statement? Of course you have to do an environmental impact statement. And they wrote letters publicly. They wrote letters to the advertiser. They wrote letters other places. They demanded that the environmental impact statement happen, but to no, to no success. But the advertiser covered that. The advertiser covered a lot of stuff 
that you wouldn't have thought a conservative newspaper run by a conservative governor in a conservative government atmosphere with this gigantic military-related project, you wouldn't think that they would be doing that. And they normally don't. They're normally cheerleaders for these kind of projects. But in this case, we have to give them a fair amount of credit. Could you talk about, you mentioned two words in the book that are fairly scary, depleted uranium. On the Big Island, one of the big concerns on the Big Island was that um, where there were no where there were no ferries running to the Big Island, but there was the plan to have ferries at about this time in 2009 that they were going to start running ferries to the Big Island uh, as soon as they got the second ferry manufactured. And the purpose of running ferries to the Big Island was, they said, was to just you know help people carry their vegetables around between the islands. But the real purpose, and it even showed up in in documents of the Public Utilities Commission where they were talking about uh, what the purpose of the boat was going to be when they applied for permits to make a boat, was to carry striker tanks from Oahu to, which is where they're based, over to uh, the Big Island where there's a giant training facility, the Pokuloa training area on the Big Island. It's a huge area between the Located, of course, right between the three sacred mountains on the on the Big Island, and that's where soldiers train with striker tanks before going off to Iraq and other places. The strikers are what's used in Iraq. The strikers are famous for shooting uranium-coated bullets, and um, so people on the Big Island, of course, were terrified that there'd be live uranium being fired around on the Big Island. It was never verified that, that it was going to be that way. And um, it is possible that they weren't going to use live uranium-covered bullets on the Big Island. But there was already a history. In previous years, depleted uranium was used uh, in, uh, for various training activities uh, 20 years before or so on the Big Island. And even now, there is, you know, there are tests that show that there's some of that uranium still blowing down over Kona, the resort town. And so people were very, very up in arms when, the, when there was talk of, of a super ferry bringing strikers over there when the strikers are known to shoot these um, depleted uranium uh, ammunition. So they were pretty upset on the Big Island. And, and giant, if they ever actually brought that boat, it would have been another Kauai situation. There were going to be major protests planned on the Big Island, and I, th- I think they probably would have done that. But now it's been canceled. Those runs have been completely canceled. Actually, everything's been completely canceled now as of this week. Yeah. I've been speaking with Jerry Mander. His new book is The Super Fairy Chronicles, Hawaii's Uprising Against Militarism and the Desecration of the Earth. Thank you for joining me, Jerry. Oh, thank you so much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.